Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My guest today is Sarah Ellison. She's a staff writer for the Washington Post, who's based in New York. Before writing for the Washington Post, Sarah wrote for Vanity Fair and Newsweek and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I also understand that she started writing for Newsweek as a news assistant in Paris. Great place to start your career. Uh, welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. So I am uh, really fascinated by the news business. Um, as a lawyer, I know uh, very well that the way you tell a story and how you shape a story from the very beginning really is, is everything. And journalists, I mean, you guys have so much power. Uh, you write a lot about the business behind the news business, uh, consolidations or failed attempted uh, purchases, accountability by news organizations and, and journalists. Uh, is there anything, Sarah, that concerns you right now? Are, are there any big trends? Uh, is it the lack of gatekeepers? Is it too many gatekeepers? Is it mergers? Uh, is there something you find worrisome? So many things, I guess, but I think that one of the um, the big questions, the news business always feels like it's a moment of transition in some way because technology is sort of um, shifting so many of the priorities. Um, but now is a moment where in particular people are coming out of, we're coming out of the Trump years and it's it felt for a while like Trump was sort of the assignment editor for a lot of news organizations. And people joked about that, but it really was that he knew how to manipulate the news cycle in a way that was entirely effective. So I would say that what's interesting coming out of that is that a lot of news organizations, these you know, cable news operations are having to sort of dig deep and find some stories on their own to follow and to, to make, you know, some. Uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about CNN today, but a place like CNN was famous for a Malaysian airline flight that disappeared. Um, and they spent hours and hours and hours making that a story. Now people need to find their, their new, the new source of their, um, their programming now that Trump is no longer around. I think Trump as the assignment editor was problematic for its own reason. He he made it perhaps too easy because there was a news story every time he had a press conference or, or, or issued a tweet. I, in some ways, it was really unfair to the rest of news that was happening. And, and you know, it, it kind of balkanized people into these different camps. Uh, but it didn't really start there, did it? I mean, he may have exaggerated the balkanization, but hasn't news been moving in that direction for a while? I mean, ever since there was the development of cable news and Fox News and the identification of an audience that was neglected. I mean, the, the, whole, I, the whole idea behind Fox News was that, and th that in fact, conservatives felt that they were not represented, particularly well represented by mainstream news outlets. And so the moment you start an operation that is not just the big three news networks, which is ABC, CBS, and NBC News, and you have lots of other voices, you get to have news that that speaks to you and that brings you what you want to hear, and that so that's you're right that that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, 
You mentioned the Chris Cuomo story. I know a lot has been said about this. If Andrew Cuomo hadn't been Governor Andrew Cuomo, but had been teacher Andrew Cuomo, um, construction worker Andrew Cuomo, would Chris Cuomo's intervention on his brother's behalf have been problematic in your view? It's interesting because the reason that we understand from CNN that Chris Cuomo was fired was because he was, did not disclose what he did to his bosses. You know, he did not disclose the, the advice that he gave to his brother. And there are a lot of people who exist in the normal world who say, what was so wrong about advising your brother? If I had a brother who was in trouble, I would have done this very same thing. And it's interesting because there's no code um, that, you know, if you're a lawyer, there is obviously a professional code. You have to do, you can be disbarred. Um, for certain things, and the rules are there for those for that kind of behavior. There's not really something like that for journalists. There's sort of the norms and and ethics of what we what we follow. The ethical breach that Chris Cuomo sort of crossed was that he advised somebody who was a sitting politician, and that they that was in the news that the network was covering. And while even though he decided. And the thing that CNN was able to say was that we've given him, he's not going to cover his brother. And so he's it's okay. He's allowed to advise his brother in his personal capacity as long as he doesn't cover him. And that was the way that they sort of parsed the question. If he had been a teacher, it would have been much, much easier um, to justify what he did. But he was a sitting politician who had a massive impact on the policy and the moment that we were all living through with with. COVID. And so I think that there were two things that were working against Chris Cuomo. One was, based on our reporting, it was that he was advising somebody who was absolutely in the news, and also that he wasn't fully transparent about what he was doing. Yeah, because CNN wouldn't have mattered. I mean, nobody would have cared if it had been uh, Chris uh, Andrew Cuomo, teacher or construction worker, uh, to your point. Do you think that CNN handled it appropriately? You know, it's not really for me to say as somebody who covers them and and is trying to kind of just report on the way that they're thinking or the way that that they're being. I mean, we certainly reported on journalist ethicists and people who were finding flaws in. I mean, our media columnist wrote about this and somebody who's allowed to have an opinion about this. CNN got a lot of criticism for not acting more quickly to say, you know, Chris Cuomo obviously sort of famously did these interviews with his brother at the height of COVID, right when New York was going through the worst of it. And so CNN gave him the ability to interview his brother when it was good news. But then when it stopped being a good time for his brother, then they sort of put the restrictions back in. So I would say that the criticism of CNN was that they moved too slowly. What Jeff Zucker at CNN was saying was, I'm making a choice that and we are drawing the lines to say that this is okay up to a point as long as he discloses it. And then they were the ones who said finally when he wasn't disclosing it to his own bosses that he that he went too far. I, I want to go back actually to how you very deftly answered my question because I think it was appropriate for you to say my personal opinion, I'm paraphrasing, uh, I don't want to kind of put out there because I'm a reporter who covers this, uh, I'm a reporter who covers this topic. Uh, what you are doing is, uh, to my mind, trying to reiterate that there is such a thing as journalistic objectivity, but is there really, you know, I interviewed a journalist and he said, there's no such thing as objectivity, there's only fairness. Uh, what do you think about that? 
I think that's absolutely correct. There is a long time, for a long time, big journalistic organizations like to, to kind of wrap themselves in the warm blanket of objectivity and that we are only reporting what is objectively the case. And, and that's been sort of chipped away at in a million different, from a million different directions, politically, right and left, from an identity perspective, like who gets to tell, you know, who gets to report on the news. Fairness is absolutely the right met metric and the right measure. It's still, though, in terms of me to say when Chris Cuomo should have been fired, it go that goes beyond. And I think everyone, I mean, I started my career now, you know, longer ago than I'd like to admit, but it's definitely a question, an answer that has changed. Um, when I was at the Wall Street Journal at the beginning of my career, our um, publisher was talking about how you could build truth fact by fact, like brick upon brick, similar to the building of a cathedral. And it was this really lovely idea that I was really taken with. We've just seen how that's gotten so much more complicated over the past decades. You can't really come up with truth with a capital T. But... Like, can't you really? So you work at a, uh, you're at the Washington Post. The Washington Post has been in the targets of any decision maker, you know, from Richard Nixon, anybody's on the other end of a, of a, of a bad story uh, comes after you guys. The fact that people are mad, the fact that people can concoct alter alternate realities doesn't mean that there is such a thing. I mean, are we are the rest of us being bullied into kind of accepting a sort of, well, there are two sides to everything approach when sometimes there isn't really? I, that's a loaded question because I do feel like that. I, I feel like a lot of people are being bullied into having to admit the legitimacy of things that are factually nonsensical. Has the pendulum swung too far, Sarah? It depends on exactly what situation we're talking about and we're referring to. Certainly, you you know, on something like vaccines or the pandemic, there is a way to report on facts and on public health that vaccines work. It's not your own personal research project to determine whether or not you want to get a vaccine. Like there's a lot of evidence to them. And so I don't think that, you know, and, and certainly my organization and others aren't respectable organizations. And I hate to even say respectable, but like fact-based evidence-based reporting indicates that that there's no two sides to that argument. And I would say that fairness really is a higher burden than what people like to talk about with balance, where you call and you say there are, you know, you call somebody on the other side and you make a well-rounded group of calls to different sources and you come up with an answer. I mean, fairness really does require you to come down with an answer. So yes, there is, I mean, when you say being bullied, I'm curious who you're referring to, like what kind of story do you think that there's a... Not really any person or entity in particular, but I think that there's become an increasing normalization of things and ideas and principles and statements that have no basis in fact. Uh, it's become much more credible for people to simply lie and, you know, the lies normalized. I mean, maybe I'm older than I'd like to admit to, but once upon a time, it was not okay. Like you did not, you got called out for making stuff up. These mm -hmm. days, it seems 
you know, you are defended and protected and coddled if, you know, people like your lie. I mean, certainly there are lies that have gained a lot of traction with a large number of people. And that that gives those lies oxygen. You know, the lie that the election was stolen, we refer to as the big lie. That's something that's that millions of people in this country believe. And doesn't matter how many times we report on the legitimacy of the election, that is something that is going to um, continue and circulate for however long people are kind of prop, you know, promulgating that, that lie. But we, we as journalists, I mean, the question of what is a lie and what isn't a lie and what's a mistruth and what someone said, you know what I mean? To, 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 say, to call something a lie in our book, you have to know that that person believes and knows what they're saying is a lie and that what they're saying isn't true. And it's very hard to know what's inside somebody's head. And so we have all these sort of hoops that we have to jump through and hurdles that we have to reach that I think in the end are really strong and protective of what the actual truth is, but it requires journalists to work really hard to try to get to that point. And it also isn't as satisfying when you want someone to say that it's a lie and we have a kind of process to go through to kind of get there. And it, and when we started, when we, we there were times where, um, you know, the Washington Post said Trump lied about things, but it took us a while to establish a fact pattern that he actually knew what the truth was and was lying about something. It wasn't just every every mistruth or if or factual inaccuracy that he uttered you know we had a whole method for figuring that out i want to talk a little bit about uh, your particular beat i mean such as i've digested it which is really focused on the business behind the business uh, news organizations that uh, have come under fire for misrepresenting themselves, misrepresenting how they get audience. Uh, that's really a, a big deal. You know, you, you wrote about Aussie Media, where I guess uh, its uh, CEO got into some trouble or and is being accused of overstating readership and doing, I guess, what a lot of organizations, or I should say a fair number of organizations do, which is... Uh, and maybe you could explain how it works. They essentially buy audience or they buy access to these algorithms that make it look like they've got more people reading than is actually the case. Can you explain how all that works, Sarah? It's a tricky thing to explain, but in in just a very shorthand way, audience online, you don't know who's you don't know what a page impression where that's actually coming from. If that's coming from a really interested human, if that's coming from a bot, if that's coming from a paid advertisement sort of that has essentially purchased a view, purchased a page view. So you can buy audience in a way online that is pretty common, in fact. I mean, there's a, just a, a lot of different websites and a lot of different digital publishers do this. The, the key, is that you have to have some actual audience and traffic beneath your product that's actually consuming your product that you can sort of use certain techniques to juice the audience, but you need to have something really big and underlying. And one of the things that Ozzy did was 
have um, they had they had a product they had articles that they were producing they had videos that they were producing but they were relying almost entirely on audience that they purchased for that for that particular video and so that that no one real was really showing up to watch that or to consume that um piece of content. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so this is different from, uh, let's say, you know, cause there are companies and people who will look at what's trending and they will say, you know, direct your trap, use these search terms or, uh, place your ads here. What you're describing is a little bit different. If I understand it correctly, that you're actually purchasing views that aren't necessarily human? I mean, it, it just, well, it, it seems it's not strange. That it's not that they're actually not human. It's just that these are people who might be looking for something. I mean, it's a little bit along the lines of what you're saying, but, it, but a bit more aggressive. And in that this is something that people are looking for. So we're going to produce content that will be along those lines, and then it will take advantage of that particular search, but also send people there, even if they're not really looking for that. So, so if it's such a industry, I mean, I don't want to say industry wide, who knows what the industry is anymore these days, but if it's, if it's a not uncommon practice, if it's something that outlets are doing, uh, why did Aussie media, why are they in such hot water over it? Well, it's a matter of degree, first of all, and it appears that Aussie was relying on this tactic mo more than the, than average. Um, than the average publication, the digital pub publication. But what Aussie really got, um, what really highlighted it for everyone is that an Aussie employee, one of its executives impersonated on a conference call, an executive from a different company that appeared to be representing interest in Aussie's product. In its, in, on an investor call, there was to get new investment into Aussie. There was an Aussie representative and an Aussie executive that was impersonating an executive from YouTube to make it seem like Ozzy was getting a lot of interest from Silicon Valley platforms. And so there's something there that like, it might be kind of difficult to understand how traffic works and who's watching what, but we all understand. Pretending to be somebody is. else. Yeah. We all understand that pretending to be somebody who you are not in order right. to get people to give you money. Uh, right. That Yeah. Okay. That, that, that makes it very, very simple and plain. Um, have you ever done a story that you regret? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm sure that I have. I mean, I can think of things that I regret, individual choices that I've made in a story that I regret, not giving someone a sufficient heads up about their appearance in a story. Um, you know, when you're gonna write a, a kind of difficult story about someone or in which they are mentioned, it's always hard to make that call and give somebody a heads up and, or let them know, you know, it's our practice that you have to give people the opportunity to comment if you're gonna write about them. And I've always done that, but there are moments where you haven't been quite as explicit with somebody about what the story is going to say. So I've, I've been, you know, I've, I've regretted those kinds of decisions wholesale. Do I regret writing an entire story? I'm sure I, I do, but I can't think of it right now. Um, here's another one for you. And I, I won't ask you for the specifics. It's funny, like, you know, in a, 
another profession where you got to be very careful about what you say, law. Like, I'm looking out for you journalists. You know, I'll ask some hard questions, but I don't want you guys to get sued. Uh, you do a valuable public service. I do think you have a lot of power. Sometimes it's not always used uh, wisely. That um, I'd agree with. I would agree with that. But uh, have you? has there ever been a time where you've said, I've got like, you know, let's just say you were investigating or reporting on someone where you had an actual personal feeling about it. Mm. And you're like, I don't like this person. I think they're bad news. I mm-hmm. think that there is some truth to this. We have to put it out. But what are the things that you do to remind yourself to be fair when you are confronting, reporting on something that you've got an obligation, you know, you've got a fair, you've got to give a fair report. Again, people define that differently, but uh, how do you keep your personal feelings about it in check? I would say that there's a saying in journalism that is sort of a joke where people say, well, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, this is too good to check, too good to be true. One of the best ways to get um, to force yourself into a, a position of fairness on something is to talk to the subject of whatever tough story it is that you are writing about and really try to elicit their point of view. To really, I mean, so much of what my job is, is to get people to tell me things they probably shouldn't tell me or that, 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 that people would want to keep quiet. And so part of that is really establishing a rapport with someone, even over the, even if it's just over the course of an afternoon, that you can sort of talk to them about what it is, how is it that you see this? What happened, you know, I'm, you know, when you, when you stole that money, what was going through your mind and what was the justification that you, and I'm sure that that person, everybody thinks they're a pretty good person themselves. And so the best way to try to muddy the waters in your own mind or to invite that kind of fairness is to really talk to somebody and and get them to explain for you how do i see this from your how do i see this from your perspective it's a, it's it's hard though i mean we're not that's one of the reasons we have editors that's one of the reasons why we have to you know go through these steps cuz it's not you don't always like everybody that you write about and you do see real wrongdoing has there, ever been, has there ever been a time when it was really, really hard, if you want to give me an example, where you were like, I am having a really, really hard time uh, trying to process this in a fair and objective way because something about this person, this situation, this backstory is turning my stomach. Has that ever happened? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say turning my stomach, but I would say that one of the things that I really care about is um, small local newspapers and news organizations because so much of what you're talking about in terms of people being bullied into kind of seeing the other side of something when they're not seeing the others but but countenancing something that's false right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, my view is that we were all a lot better off when there were lots of local news sources where people were getting their information because it was easier to kind of fact check that and it was easier to sort of feel some proximity to um, the news and what you were learning in the world. So there's a there's a, a group of hedge funds that have bought up a lot of local papers and they're firing lots and lots of 
of journalists. And so for as a journalist, you're sort of invested in a story like that. And you think, well, why are they why are they doing that? They're just trying to make a lot of money off of the de demise of journalism. And I wrote a piece about uh, a guy named Heath Freeman, who runs Alden Global Capital, which is a hedge fund that is one of the largest that, that his fund owns, you know, some of the, I guess, is a huge owner of local news properties. And so it I think they own Tribune, don't they? Own yeah, they, Tribune just bought Tribune. Mm -hmm. they just bought mm -hmm. Tribune. And I profiled him kind of early on in the pandemic. And I was not predisposed to, to think that this was somebody who was doing great things for the world. I still don't think he's doing great things for the world. But one of the things that he presented to me was that nobody else is buying these journalists. No, nobody else wants to buy these newspapers. Like there are plenty of really wealthy people out in the world and they're not buying them. We're the only people who want to buy these publications. And so we're trying to run them as best we can. That doesn't make me feel like that that hedge fund is doing God's work, but it does make me ask the question, well, where is everybody else in this? problem. Like people wanted to, you know, the people who work at Tribune were trying to sell that paper to somebody else mm -hmm. and nobody else showed nobody up. Nobody wanted it. I mean, nobody I, wanted it. So they may not be doing God's work, but they're not the devil either. Well, right. I mean, even because... if they are, nobody else is showing up to stop them. Right. So if the right. devil's the only. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that they are no. certainly not saying that, but what I'm saying of is course. like, he has a point. He has mm -hmm. a point, you know? Okay, you think these people are so terrible. Go somebody else buy. It. Go ahead, buy them. Do it. You know. So that's an interesting case. And, and the prelim. I mean, and the issue that sort of even precedes the fact that nobody's buying these papers is that a lot of the local publications are struggling. I mean, they're looking for buyers because readership is falling off. Readership is falling off because they have so you know people have access to so many other platforms, free uh, it would seem free, yeah, exactly. free, free platforms uh, that co correspond to what they want to hear. You know, that's the, to back to your point. You just nailed it. Like if I can just listen to people tell me the things that make me feel good, why should I subscribe to the Washington Post or, you know, to papers that, although I will say it seems that a lot of the larger, um, publications, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, have managed to get people to pay for their news. I mean, I, I, I did. <laughs> I had to pay in order to read some of your pieces, which is right. a great, no, but I take Thank that back. You. By the Thank way, you. by the way, I, I was already a subscriber. I was already a subscriber. <laughs> but um, are, are you worried about local news? I mean, I know that some of these, uh, some local organizations have been able to push back against uh, being bought up. Uh, are you worried about the fate of the local journalist who kind of focuses on facts close to home? Absolutely. I think that there's like no greater concern in the news business than the demise of local outlets that are reporting on com the communities around them. And it's not always the sexiest stories. It's not always muckraking. It's just reporting on a community and bearing witness to what's happening there. And I think that that's something that we have seen, you know, 
decimated across the country so that people, there are all sorts of reasons why that's important for people to be able to see what's happening in their communities. But I'm, I'm absolutely, I mean, I can feel, I feel very confident in saying that that's one of the things I'm most worried about. A, a journalist uh, I interviewed uh, referred to it as the, he said there's a proliferation of what he described as news deserts. And, and I think that, you know, you just put a really good pin on it. Even if it's not muckraking, it may not be sexy by explaining what's going on in these parts of America that don't always have cameras pointed on them. We really get a better understanding of things. I mean, the, you know, the, the nuances of how things work are, are, are sometimes really being lost. Um, I, I am so appreciative of you spending the time with me uh, right on the heels of the holidays. This will be out in 2022, uh, early in the year. But um, before you go, uh, again, because I'm fascinated with journalists and people who decide to, you know, go into that business, right? Like, yeah, I, I, for the most part, or at least for the folks who work at uh, a lot of places, um, you know, where they put in the time and the years, you want you went in because you wanted to do something. You wanted to tell stories uh, and expose truths. Um, are you hopeful for that? Do you think that there is a path for your business to keep getting better? Or are you worried that you're constantly under threat from, you know, anybody can sit down in front of their computer, make up any kind of thing, and maybe, you know, Get more clicks than you do, Sarah Ellison, veteran reporter who checks her sources. Um, are you worried? And if you're not worried, uh, give us something hopeful with which to leave on. Well, I am always worried about uh, misinformation and people believing things that aren't true because I think that the truth, this is why we all got into this business and the truth is something that um, really is a, I mean, there's just nothing, you know, to sound super silly about it. There's just sort of nothing better for society than a truthful um, view of what's going on around us. So, but do I feel hopeful? I do because as much as our business has been really decimated, there is still, incredible work that is happening all around the country and people who are, you know, whose jobs are way more demanding than mine and way harder are, are pushing for that information to come out. And even while, you know, and they're doing it because, and we're doing it because we believe in it. We believe in the, in the mission of, of journalism. And so I would say that there are just a lot of people out there willing to be underpaid and overworked to bring you your daily news. So I would look forward to that in 2022. We will still be around. Thank you for being underpaid and overworked. If <laughs> um, and Thank you especially uh, for taking time uh, to chat with us today. Uh, please stay safe in New York. Happy New Year, Sarah. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year to you too.